Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Paul Bonanos, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, SVB, of course. Pfizer mixes things up, taking out CGen in a massive deal. And we had CEDAR director Patrizia Cavazzoni sitting down with Steve on the BioCentury show. We'll get some of the key takeaways from that conversation. And we check in on women in the C-suite. But first, BioCentury this week is sponsored by Jato Capital, a leading global private equity company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. Jado empowers and supports managers through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team and through the investment of significant capital to ensure the growth of companies, building market leaders in their respective therapeutic areas with accelerated patients access globally, especially in Europe and the US, JATO has 534 million euros under management and a rapidly growing portfolio of investments. The firm is based in Paris with a presence in Europe and the US. Well, it's been an extraordinary few days and a very long weekend with the collapse of SVB, a banking institution that's been a key player in the biotech sector for years. Obviously, a huge sigh of relief last night as regulators stepped in and said depositors would have full access to their deposits. Simone, I'd like to bring you in. Uh, what are you seeing and hearing? Yeah, let me just start with this. We were communicating over the weekend. It was very clear that we were going to be talking about SVB this morning on the pod. As the weekend unfolded, who knew what we were going to be saying? In fact, until last night, who knew what we were going to be saying? So this story is really only not even half written, if you ask me, because basically, yes, the industry, the biotech industry managed to step back from a very big brink. But this was a weekend. Companies, investors, everybody worked flat out this weekend. Everybody has been thinking about their company, their programs. How do they cut? They've all been going through plan A, B, C, D. They didn't know when they were going to get their money. But in so doing, they created all these plans. And they probably, uh, and I know this to be true for several, have uncovered all kinds of things that were in their company. Maybe they weren't doing things the best way. Maybe there are other strategies. Maybe there's places here to cut. I don't think anybody goes back on Monday morning to where they were on Thursday, let's say, or Wednesday last week. I think that this has had an effect beyond even the companies that directly had deposits in SVB. I think we've got investors who are going to be thinking differently. You know, do they need to figure out how they manage their money? Are they going to need to change the resources available to support companies if things like this happen? Will people change their banking habits? Maybe not putting everything all in one bank. I think there's a lot of things that will still unfold. I think there'll be some um, bruises for a little while, if not deep scars, certainly not what it could have been. Yeah, you, you know, Simone, I was 
reflecting over the weekend kind of on some of the conversations that we had Thursday night, Friday morning, Friday into the day. And I mean, even just the response that I, you know, from speaking to investors, I mean, can't really say there was a consensus sort of response, right? I mean, you had some VCs saying, well, we're telling all of our companies to pull their money out. And you had others saying, you know, we're calling for calm. And then you had this sort of a middle road where some were saying, well, you should take out operational funding, but keep some of the money in, you know? So there was this spectrum of responses that I, I'm sure there'll be a lot of reflection here. And I, I think what will be curious is to see kind of what grows out of that in terms of how, maybe what structures are better put in place to manage this, even though this was a black swan event, right? I imagine there's still going to be some risk structures that are going to be put in place to try and better handle when this sort of thing happens, how you then go about sort of responding to it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you, you got to remember, there's been a lot of black swans around recently. So, you know, this is coming on the heels of... A lot more uh, common than we thought they were. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, not just the pandemic, you know, biotechs are reeling because there's no capital markets for them. On top of that, the Inflation Reduction Act changed the whole way that they have to think about their programs. Now, suddenly, a lot of them are like, I don't know how I'm going to make payroll next week, right? You know, it sort of mm -hmm. became a lot more proximate, the urgency. But even if you take that step back and, okay, they can make payroll and so on, I think we have to acknowledge SVB was a major player in this industry, and that bank is no longer there, right? Now, there are some people who are sentimental, and they sort of feel that it fueled the industry, and, you know, its demise is a moment that we should pass and so on. And that's fair. There's other people who are like, no, they're a business like anywhere else. You know, they didn't do this out of charity. So we don't have to spend a lot of time on that. Fine. Either way is fine. The point really is that as an entity, they're gone. They can no longer be the default place that you go to. Whatever new entity is in their place, will it operate the same? Will it operate differently? So people do have to go out and think much more seriously about how they go about their banking. That's one thing that is probably approximate thing that everybody's got to figure out this week anyway. So I think we're going to continue talking to people. Stephen, give us the UK angle, because that's got its own whole story. Sure. Yeah. So it had a very similar sort of fast moving story that was going in lots of different directions here, because looking at the Bank of England statement, so they had basically had to step in to basically take control of SVB UK, which is a ring fenced sort of wholly independent sort of subsidiary of SVB, which on its own, you know, from what I'm told, had perfectly fine, healthy finances. But basically what I'm hearing is that the confidence and, and concerns about, you know, getting access to that capital basically triggered a run. And so the Bank of England had to step in and the, basically all by all indications from what the Bank of England was looking at on Friday was they were essentially looking to just liquidate the assets. Um, and so there were some questions around access to deposits, you know, above and beyond what's insured and you know when you'd get access to that money. But thankfully, what they announced this morning was HSBC has stepped in and for the princely sum of one pound is acquiring um, SVB UK and business is essentially moving on as as normal, which I think is a great outcome for, for the clients of, of the UK firm. And you know, I think it's also interesting just from the perspective of HSBC is not a bank that I would typically think of when I think of dealing with financings for the biotech sector or dealing with seeing them in deal docs and these sorts of things. So, you know, they typically, at least according to our database, HSBC, the, the Asia arm is where we primarily see them being active and doing IPOs and follow-ons in Asia, but we really don't see a lot of activity from them either in the US or or in Europe. And so 
I think this potentially is a very interesting sort of opportunity, actually, for the UK life sciences to have such a big, you know, large, well, <laughs> well capitalized, you know, well-backed bank kind of move in and kind of take over this, uh, take over this opportunity. Yeah, I don't know if we can say the UK biotech sector came out ahead from this, but <laughs> certainly there, you know, it's acquired a new big bank and player in the, mm. which, because it wasn't in healthcare before, if I got that right. Yeah, I mean, I I think we'll have to see how they, what they do with it, right? I think that's what will remain to be seen and what people will be very keen to follow on, right, is if they try and offer maybe some of the same services and things that SVB was was known for. But um, I, it's at least, I think, a good opportunity that uh, probably on Friday, nobody was really expecting. There's a couple of other things I want to bring up. One is this whole adventure really highlights the importance of communications and communication strategies. First, of course, on the, on the part of SVB, but also I think if you look at um, Twitter and all the other kind of social media last week, everybody had something to say about this. It's interesting to, to go back or will be interesting to go back and think about how helpful some of the things that people had to say about it were and how some of the things people had to say about it might not have been helpful. And then a third thing I think that's really important is going to be looking at not only what people said, but what people did and the extent to which people who are in a position to step in and offer help did so or didn't um, when it looked like things were going to be a lot more grim than they've, um, they've turned out. And I think in the kind of in the aftermath of all of this, those are all three things that are going to be important for people to look at because they all have to do with trust and integrity that the whole industry needs to function. I agree, Steve. And I just want to reinforce the idea that our industry is largely made from connections. People do remember who was there for them. We've seen that from the pandemic. New relationships were forged. People remember who stepped up and helped them. And this obviously was briefer than it could have been. But they'll remember. They'll remember who, you know, who stepped up and said they'd help. So I do think that there's going to be a few kind of longer lasting effects in the way that you say. All right. We did get a story out on Friday as things were melting down and we'll have a, a few things out today. And uh, this is going to be uh, something that we're staying on top of as uh, a lot of questions for industry moving forward. Well, as I said, it was a sigh of relief last night when the federal government stepped in and also a bit of a sigh of relief. Good to see some M&A today. Two biggish deals. Paul, up first, Pfizer. They had been rumored in late February to be going after CGen. Obviously, CGen last summer was uh, rumored to be in Merck's sites. But now we finally have a deal. Paul. Yes. Um, so, yes, there's lots to tell you about it. As you say, it culminates a kind of a long process that's been going on for a while. Merck rumored last summer. Um, also, don't forget the founding CEO of CGen, Clay Siegel, was replaced by David Epstein, a pharma veteran who seemed to have been tasked with finding a buyer for the 25-year-old biotech. And uh, with this deal, yeah, as you say, Pfizer had been rumored for a few weeks to have a deal in the works, and um, now it's come together. So the deal is $43 billion, the biggest M&A transaction since 2019. It's bigger than the uh, Horizon takeout by Amgen last year. The last one bigger than this was AbbVie, doing, uh, AbbVie buying Allergan and also Bristol and Celgene in 2019. Um, third, it's part of a buying spree by Pfizer, which is coming off a record year of sales, mostly due to COVID vaccines and also the um, antiviral Paxlovid. Last year, they spent $26 billion on four deals. and um, 
this adds to that. They've been explicit about setting a goal. They said that by 2030, Pfizer wants to derive $25 billion in revenue, annual revenue, from deals that they're making now. So last year's deals, uh, those included Biohaven, Arena, and Global Blood Therapeutics. They think they can get more than $10 billion out of by 2030. And now CGen, they think, will bring another $10 billion. So they're spending $69 billion across a total of five deals, believing that they'll bring more than $20 billion toward that $25 billion goal. So there's probably still more M&A on the way, maybe something smaller than this, but they're not done. So, Paul, you gave the target there. Can they get there? Where, where are they at right now? Well, for, for CGen, yes, it, it would take some growth. Um, they're anticipating CGen um, to do about a $2.2, $2.3 billion year in 2022. So it's a long way to $10 billion from there. And there is some skepticism out there that they can get there. Uh, consensus pegs the number closer to $7 or $8 billion. Um, but Pfizer also says, uh, and this is from this morning's conference call, it believes some of CGen's pipeline assets are undervalued, and it also believes uh, it has a few more things. One, much more sales infrastructure in and out of the U.S. Two, a strong trial site network to develop drugs more quickly, and also a chance to develop combinations, which are easier to advance if you've got the pieces in-house. So they think there's more value there than maybe some observers are aware of. I also should mention one other interesting thing about Pfizer buying CGen is Pfizer divested its ADC platform a couple of years ago. A company called Pixis has it now, which is public, but uh, has had a rocky year. They're pretty small. And it's led by a former Pfizer employee, by the way. Um, so now Pfizer believes its path forward in ADCs was not through what it used to have, but through CGen. And it's tilting their oncology holdings from strength in small molecules historically, all of its blockbusters in the oncology franchise, which is a total of a $12 billion franchise last year. All of its blockbusters are small molecules, and it's tilting away from that and toward biologics, specifically ADCs. So that's where the growth will come from. Some of the drugs they have will be past the patent cliff by the turn of the decade. So they're replacing small molecule revenues with ADC revenues. And um, remember, the IRA legislation also provides an incentive to do that. I don't know if that's what drove the deal exactly, but I'm sure it definitely went into Pfizer's thinking. All right. And the other deal out there today, uh, we have Sanofi buying its partner Prevention. Prevention, of course, has the disease-modifying treatment to delay type 1 diabetes. Uh, that deal is approaching about $3 billion. So quite a sizable deal would be a huge deal if we didn't have a $43 billion deal to talk about. We have our very own Lauren Marks poking at that one, and we'll have something out on biocentury.com. But I wanted to move on to the Biocentury show. We had a great interview last week with the director of FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, Patrizia Cavazzoni. She sat down with Steve. Steve, what were some of the highlights? Well, I, I want to start out by saying, you know, that I think, like I always say, people should watch the interview. It's on YouTube as well as on our website. Uh, Dr. Cavazzoni is really, I think, the most important person in the world when it comes to the future of drug development, certainly from a regulatory perspective. So it's, it's interesting to see not only what she says, but how she thinks about things. One of the things that she said that was particularly interesting, she said that Billy Dunn's departure doesn't signal a change in the way FDA is going to regulate drugs for neurological conditions that there was buy-in for more senior officials for all of his decisions. 
Uh, she believes that neurological conditions, especially degenerative diseases, are an inflection point that's similar to where cancer was 20 years ago with insights into the biology driving new effective treatments. We talked about accelerated approval. She said that having confirmatory trials enrolled and ongoing at the time of accelerated approval is now the default assumption. There are going to be exceptions. For example, when a company finds exceptional efficacy for an unmet need and the confirmatory trial hasn't been launched yet, FDA is not going to make patients wait. But in general, she was quite clear that the expectation is that those trials will be enrolled and ongoing at the time of accelerated approval. We talked about advisory committees, about the idea of decoupling meetings that discuss endpoints from those that discuss specific products. She said FDA is working on plans to make that happen. In general, I got the impression from her that we're going to be seeing a lot of changes in FDA's policies around the ways that it gets external advice from patients, scientists, and physicians. And then we talked about um, regulatory flexibility, what it is and how she thinks about it, which is basically it's about making decisions that make sense in the context of what patients need and what's possible in terms of developing evidence of um, safety and efficacy. Yes, Steve, I thought the part on regulatory flexibility was very interesting. I mean, it, in a way, they're sort of threading a needle, but in another way, it was very good that she laid out, um, you know, definitely stipulating that accelerated approval really still means you've got to meet a substantial standard of efficacy. It's not sort of a watered down efficacy. I thought the flexibility was very interesting. The other thing she said, and I know FDA says this over and over again, but apparently they need to keep saying it. I thought the stuff she talked about for early stage companies was important, saying IND and pre-IND meetings really making it clear that understanding the trans thinking about translation from the very beginning and all of that and the biology underlying it all of that is what you're going to need later to support an accelerated approval so i i thought there was a lot in there you know that was very helpful to companies as well yeah i, I think so too again you know i would encourage anybody who's um interested in drug development to pay attention to what she says yep just go right over to google type in BioCentury and YouTube, and uh, you'll land right on that page, and you'll see some other great conversations that we've had recently as well. David Reese's conversation with Simone in particular was quite interesting, so check out our content there. You can also find it on our website, of course. All right, well, last week was International Women's Day, and as I recall, a few years ago, Simone, you uh, wrote a piece talking about the tremendous strides that women have made in the biopharma industry. You said supporters of equality should be shouting from the rooftops. And I know last week you dug into the data, more particular in the pharma C-suite. And are you still shouting from the rooftops, Simone? Thanks, Jeff. This was something that in my bones, I kind of wanted to write for a while. In my bones, I knew it to be true. And then I went and looked at the numbers. And it is great that there's a lot of women making a lot of progress. And Jeff, you'll remember for Back to School, we documented 400 women CEOs of yeah. uh, biotechs that most people would have not thought there were that many. That's great. But that's not enough. That's not even nearly enough. And what was being my bonnet that I've had most recently is all of these pharma companies, we looked at the 30 biggest pharma companies, 
And there were eight hires, eight CEO hires in the last couple of years, and none of them were women. And you just look at it and women are barely into the C-suite and certainly not to the CEO position. So across those companies, there are four women, Emma Walmsley of GSK, Belen Garijo of uh, Merck Kaga, Deborah Dunsire of Lundbeck, and Reshma Kawal Ramani of Vertex. Great, four, four out of 30. That's 13%. No, Jeff, I am not shouting about that from the rooftops. I, I agree with you there. That's uh, pretty dismal. It, what's going on here? Is this a pipeline problem? Great question. So what's going on? So first of all, Jeff, you know, and I know, I've never yet met somebody from a board or a, or a CEO who didn't tell me that they hired the best person. We look at regardless of gender and race and this and that, but you look at the numbers and frankly, it's really hard to square that. I've given you the CEO number, um, but across all of the C-suite hires, there were 40 in the time period we looked at, which is since the beginning of 2021. And nine of them, so that's 22.5%, were women. So are there, is there not enough pipeline? Sure. So we looked at the level below CEOs, so subsidiary heads, C, heads of R&D, other SVPs, so on. And what you see is out of 54 appointments there, 14, that's 26%, were women, right? So yeah, there's a pipeline problem. Then we thought about, well, pharma companies, do they prefer to promote internally versus externally? And is that a differentiator? So it's definitely true that pharma companies like to promote from within. So about across like there were 97 uh, leadership appointments in the time we looked at, 59% of those came from internal hiring, which I thought was interesting. But it didn't matter whether they came from the inside or the outside. The proportions were the same, basically around 25%. And even when farmers do go outside, they hire people who come from other farmers, so from the peer group, which isn't itself a problem. The problem is that there's not a better training ground. So it doesn't matter which way you cut it, women aren't getting appointed in more than about one in four cases. And why is this important, Jeff? It's important because the pharma companies say what you like, they are the most important and influential in the industry, influential inside our industry, and they are influential in healthcare across the globe, actually. I was going to say across the US, but across the globe. And so if women are not represented there, those companies are not representing their workforce, they are not representing the patients they serve, and they are not capturing the best talent. Real big problem, watching you farmers, counting, hoping to see that there's some C-suite positions open and there'll be more. So uh, let's get some more women pharma CEOs there. Check out Simone's editor's commentary. Uh, she has the data in there. It's in front of our paywall. You can uh, go to Simone's Twitter handle at Fishburn Simone and find the article there or find it on biocentry.com. All right, Steve, Stephen. Paul and Simone, thank you very much. And two upcoming BioCentury events for your calendar. Our webinar on the Inflation Reduction Act is coming up on March 30th. Go to biocenturyira.com to learn more. And we have our spring conference, BioEquity Europe, 
You can register at bioequityeurope.com. That's coming up May 14th to 16th in Dublin, Ireland. Don't wait. Last year's event in Milan sold out. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in.